This is Growing the Valley, a podcast by the University of California, Agriculture and Natural Resources. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Melliron, Farm Advisor for Butte, Tehama, and Glen Counties. I'm your other host, Phoebe Gordon, Orchard Farm Advisor for Madera and Merced Counties. start of today's episode, I did want to mention that Malika Noku has a podcast of her own called Water Talk, along with Faith Kearns and Samuel Sandoval. All three of them are water experts with uh, UCANR. The podcast discusses water, and the goal is to bring communities across California together to talk about water issues, including climate change, agriculture, urban water use, and more. I've linked the podcast website in the show notes in case you want to check it out yourself. Today, I'm speaking with Malika Noko, who is the Assistant Professor of Cooperative Extension in Soil, Plant, Water Relations, and Irrigation Management. And today, we're going to be talking about evapotranspiration and a little bit about remote sensing. But what we're going to be speaking about today specifically is ETA. So before we get into that, can you just Give a little background just to remind listeners what ETO and ETC are, and I guess if you want to, maybe also get into the nitty-gritty of how those numbers are generated. Absolutely. So ETO is reference evapotranspiration, and usually the little O is going to be, you know, the subscript. So ETO would be reference evapotranspiration, and I think of reference evapotranspiration as really an index of the environment's evaporative demand. So to calculate ETO, you actually don't need to take any measurements from any plants or from any crops. This calculation is done using a meteorological station and key variables or key measurements that we take from that meteorological station. So Typically, ETO is calculated using solar radiation, temperature, relative humidity, and wind speed. And what we do with these these different variables is we put them into a, a model. And one of the most common models for calculating ETO is based on this old equation called the Penman-Monteith equation. And it's been around for a very long time. And and in that equation, what we do is we kind of assume that there's this hypothetical plant. And the hypothetical plant has a hypothetical stomatal conductance. And that would be the size of these openings in the leaves that are like little mouths that are what the transpirational water would move through. So there's an assumption of what that number would be. There's an assumption of the height of this hypothetical crop. And using that hypothetical crop behavior and the hypothetical crops that we typically use are either a reference grass that's well-watered or well-watered alfalfa. So those are these like hypothetical crops. So we take these meteorological variables, these assumptions of hypothetical crop behavior, and then we use that to come up with an estimate of ETO, which is going to be this hypothetical maximum evaporative demand from the environment. So then what about ETC? Okay. So 
ETC gets even more fun, in my opinion, as someone who studies ET. So ETC is when we take this evaporative demand estimate, so the ETO, and we want to think about it instead of for a hypothetical grass reference or a hypothetical alfalfa reference, let's say we want to think about it in the context of, you know, an almond, or we want to think about it in the context of a processing tomato within a given area or region. For decades, scientists have been thinking about how to take that hypothetical evaporative demand and make it realistic for a particular crop. And the type of research that we do is, you know, we go out and we measure actual evapotranspiration for different crops and come up with what we call a crop coefficient. And the crop coefficient is something that for a given growth phase of a crop or a given time within the development of a crop, we would use that crop coefficient as basically just a multiplier to the reference evapotranspiration or ETO. So we have some number that we multiply by ETO to get the hypothetical water use of a specific crop. And once again, this is well-watered. This is assuming that there's no stress and you have a perfectly healthy and well-watered crop. What is ETA then? And uh, how does it differ from ETO and ETC? Okay. So ETA, as as for me, at least as a scientist, is kind of like, I don't know, this very wonderful, wonderful thing that we're always trying to measure. And that is the actual evapotranspiration. So this would be an actual measurement of the evaporation from soil surfaces, from leaf surfaces, as well as the transpiration through those little mouths in the leaves that we call stomata. How do you incorporate it into your irrigation program? Um, I guess, how would you get ETA to begin with? Because to me, it sounds like ETA is going to be more useful to an actual grower than ETC, correct? ETC can be very useful. So if you're, I would say that if you're not using anything, that starting with this reference ET and use of ETC is a great place to start just to understand what those hypothetical values should be. So I, I think I don't want to, I guess I don't want to say like, no, we don't need ETC anymore. I think it's it's super useful. And in many cases, this use of, you know, ETO and then a crop coefficient to find ETC, that approach is oftentimes free in different decision support tools. Whereas to actually get it to measuring actual evapotranspiration, in most cases, to my understanding, it's it's still going to cost something to try to make that measurement, you know, using a decision support tool. There are new satellite tools that are going to be available and that are are now available to estimate actual evapotranspiration. So I think in our near future, hopefully, you know, within the next five years, 10 years, there will be high resolution estimates of actual evapotranspiration available from satellites. This is something that our research group is working on using aerial imagery from drones. I would say that there are several different ways to measure actual evapotranspiration. So one way is to use what we call a lysimeter. And this is an instrument that we put in the ground. It usually has some load cells in place, and it's actually going to measure the change in water content and the mass of water that's in you know, a representative volume of soil that also has crops planted in it. 
And using that estimate, it can be a measurement of how much water the crop has used in evaporation and transpiration. So that, that's, that's one way to measure actual evapotranspiration. And Dr. Ken Shackle, I believe, has a lysimeter installed at the Kearney Agricultural Research Station. It's super cool if anyone has a chance to go see it. So that's one approach. Another approach that folks might have seen around at research sites or if they've gone to extension events is the use of an eddy covariance tower. So these towers, they basically have several instruments on them to resolve what we call the energy budget. Because when we say actual ET and that it's a use uh, or that it's an estimate of crop water use in you know, this physical or biophysical world, you can also measure that crop water use in terms of what we call the latent heat flux, which is a kind of companion estimate of this as energy. And you can think of this like everybody is actually has some intuition for the latent heat flux. So it's something that when, when I'm talking to students about this, it's like, okay, so you're going to heat a pan of water. If you were to put a thermometer in the water that you're, you're going to boil, that thermometer would hit boiling point and there'd still be a few moments of heating before you actually started to see steam rise. And that's because it takes an additional amount of energy to cause a phase change from the liquid to the gas phase of water. And that's the latent heat of vaporization. So most of the approaches that we use for measuring actual evapotranspiration that are not lysimetry based, that are using some sort of a tower or estimate, we're actually measuring that latent heat flux. So how much energy is being lost from a surface. And that eddy covariance method, we, we basically measure all of the other parts of what we call the energy budget and end up with the latent heat flux is what's left. So that's one approach. Similarly, we use another kind of energy budget type of approach to measure actual evapotranspiration spatially. And this would be, it could be using satellite data. It could be using aerial imagery from an airplane, or it could be using drone imagery like I do. And in, in this case, we still solve that energy budget and we measure latent heat flux as an estimate of actual evapotranspiration, but we do it for every pixel in an image. So these are the high resolution kind of snapshot in time images as opposed to the eddy covariance towers that I mentioned that would give you for a larger area of your field. So not high resolution in space, but it's going to be giving constant measurements, usually you know, on the half hour. Oh, another interesting tool for measuring actual evapotranspiration is the surface renewal method. This has been developed in, in the research world for a while. And I know that there are commercial tools now available to estimate actual evapotranspiration from a crop field using surface renewal. And in this case, there's you know, a thermal couple that is going to be estimating a part of that energy budget that I mentioned. And then it's also using, in some cases, satellite data to, to get at other parts of the energy budget and still come back to measuring latent heat flux. So other than the lysimeters, most of our other tools are actually measuring latent heat flux, and then we're making a conversion from that estimate to actual evapotranspiration.
there is a commercial product that growers can buy to do surface renewal measurements at their own orchards, correct? Yes, there is. Can I say just what the company is? It's Tui. <laughs> yeah, that's well, the, just okay. not an yeah. endorsement or recommendation, just yeah. <laughs> stating a brand. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's telling you that it's out there. Okay. Yeah. Before we ch- transition into, you know, remote sensing, what are the drawbacks for using ETA? Are there any drawbacks? Right. And I guess I didn't really answer your question, Phoebe, because you wanted to know, I just talked for a bunch of time about like energy fluxes (laughs) and you asked about how to use ETA. (laughs) So, oh gosh, what a nerd. Um, (laughs) That's why why you are in your position. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in terms of how to use actual ETA and how it's different from ETC, I'm going to answer your question now. You can think of ETA as like your the actual water use of your orchard or your crop in that if you had like a bank account of water that's being used across a season, that actual ETA estimate is how much water got used yesterday or in the past week. So it would help you kind of keep track of, of the water use of a crop. And if you're thinking about this from an irrigation management perspective and say you're you're monitoring the soil moisture or, you know, the amount of plant available water in your soil, you'd need to have some understanding of the actual evapotranspiration if you were going to be replacing that soil moisture. So the soil moisture could be like your bank account and the actual evapotranspiration be how much you're, you're taking out every day. So I guess you did kind of talk about soil moisture, but would you suggest, you know, someone rely only on ETA to be doing irrigation scheduling? Oh, that's a tricky question. I mean, it it really depends, I think, on what a person is using right now. So I think it's easy for me as a scientist who is not a grower to say you should use every single thing, right? Like in an ideal environment, you have some understanding of your soil moisture and you have some understanding of the evapotranspiration that your, your crops are using. And that makes sense too. If we go back to this bank analogy of thinking about, okay, I want to know how much is in my account, but I also want to know how much I'm taking out. So I think both of those things would be useful in practice. It can be tricky, right? Because we get into an issue with soil moisture of placement of sensors and placement of tools to measure soil moisture. And like, how, how do you go about characterizing the variability in a given field? And these things are important, right? Like if, I think if you're gonna use and monitor soil moisture, you have to have some sense of the variability within a given orchard. And there's mapping tools that are available for that at a much coarser level. There's the soil web tool that can be available for that. And there's also just your own scouting, right? And that on the ground knowledge of, a, of an orchard or of a field site or of a field is very important to think about where to place those sensors in order to get the most information from them and not, you know, have lead you in a direction based on like one particular spot that's a little different from everything else. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's kind of the common complaint I have with soil sensors. And at least in, you know, the east side of the valley, I would expect most fields to have more than one different soil type. And, you know, I understand since you mentioned it, it's easy for us to sit here and say, you should do this, but <laughs> irrigation is so complicated. And I guess if you're using ETA, that's a little bit better, but you know, things change. And if you're only relying on one method to manage what is basically the most important part of farming, at least in irrigated agriculture is irrigating correctly. 
the more information you take in, the better and more informed decisions you'll be able to make. And I think it's going to be even more critical as in low water supply years. I agree. No, I completely agree. I think we're on the same page there. Yeah. And one of the things that I had mentioned, I was at an extension event at Fresno State a few weeks ago, and we were talking about soil moisture, is I think if you're going to kind of start engaging and adding layers of what I call decision support <laughs> to your irrigation management, I would add a layer and just kind of keep an eye on things before you actually change behaviors based on them. And think about it as like, well, I'm going to monitor this and, and add some soil moisture sensors if that's what you're interested in doing. And just kind of look at this and look at how it changes in response to an irrigation event and look at how deep your irrigation events are moving. Oftentimes these soil moisture sensors are going to also come with an estimate of electrical conductivity, which is a measurement of the bulk amount of salts that are in your soil. So you can watch to see how those salts are moving through your profile but I would definitely recommend if you're going to use some sort of soil moisture monitoring tool to just start small, put it maybe <laughs> maybe at one site and put a few at that site and just just watch it and just try to understand how the soils are behaving before you start to actually use it to make changes in what you're doing. Absolutely. I'm always tempted to make a joke about, since I'm a UC person, I'm contractually obligated to mention using pressure chambers. I don't want to make it sound like I'm forced to, because they are genuinely a very critical component to managing irrigation and orchard crops, because it's a good way to measure variability and to actually see if what you're seeing from the soil and your either ETA or ETC is correct, you know, is actually seeing if the plants need to be watered. How would you incorporate using pressure bombing into an irrigation program? Let's say maybe you don't own your own pressure bomb, or maybe you do but you don't have the time to go out and check your, your trees after or before every single irrigation? Yeah, this is such a great question. And I know that I, I think that you actually probably have some insight on this question too. And so maybe I, I can tell you what I think, but I'm also curious to hear what you think, Phoebe. So I would say that first, I, I understand that this can be a time-consuming measurement to take. And I would say that the way to think about using that pressure bomb and, and making these stem water potential measurements as getting back to that bank account analogy, right? So the soil moisture is kind of like the reservoir, your, your funds, and the actual evapotranspiration, that's how much water that you've used. But it's not telling you anything really about the stress of your trees, if you are just, or, or plants, if you're just irrigating to what would be a hypothetical amount of water use or, or that ETC level for your crop, right? Because you can't measure or estimate actual evapotranspiration before it's happened. <laughs> so when you're actually making your irrigation decisions, that's when you're maybe considering that ETC of like, how much water am I going to use for the next week? Or how much water am I, you know, how am I going to schedule my irrigation you know, set over the next few weeks, right? That's when you're thinking of what does the weather look like? What's the forecast? What would the ETC be over that time period? And, and in that same vein, you're going to want to think about how would you manage the stress of your trees? And I think that it would be really a, a good way to kind of incorp start incorporating these pressure bomb measurements in would be to think of key times, right? So what are some key times that are key moments when it would be 
worth it for you to be monitoring that stress. And, and I'm thinking specifically of like maybe when to start irrigation in the spring, that would be a good time to, to use the pressure bomb. I'm thinking for an almond specifically when you're, you're getting to that hull split time period where we know, and there's some research showing that some moderated deficit irrigation or controlled deficit irrigation might be good. So that would be another moment that it would be great to go out and be, be pressure bombing around that time. And any other time when you want to be wise with your water use, right? So instead, I think that especially as water becomes more and more scarce, you're not going to want to just put water down to ETC based on your weather forecast. You're going to actually want to take some measurements and and have some sense of how your trees are doing. So that's how I would recommend kind of getting into that measurement if you've kind of made the decision that you're not going to be taking that measurement with a lot of frequency. So instead, at least be strategic about the times. I will say that this is an area where I think we've heard you, we've heard that this is a hard measurement and are working on kind of trying to develop some remote sensing tools that might be better and easier for trying to get at that stem water potential. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you're saying. I, the only other additional critical time that I would add on is with young orchards. When you're kind of doing this guessing game of like, okay, is this 20% shaded coverage or is this 30% shaded coverage? It's difficult to, that's also going to be changing throughout the growing season too, as the trees get bigger, especially if you have a really fast growing tree crop like almonds, going out and pressure bombing a couple of times can be really beneficial. It was a long time ago that Ken Shackle did some work with young almonds, showing how critically important pressure bombing can be. You don't want to really let young almonds get very water stressed because that's going to start slowing down growth. And so just by making sure that they're maintaining the trees without much stress, you know, they got much better growth than what traditional irrigation practices are. ETC is great. It's a very good tool, but it's just, you can't use just one thing when you're managing irrigation. Yeah. I I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the young orchards as well. No, this is, we are definitely on the same page with this. Let's transition into remote sensing for irrigation management. I guess you kind of went over a couple of different tools like drones and satellites. So what's the strength for remote sensing ET and what are some of the weaknesses? Yeah, so we're getting back to space and time here. So I think that the greatest strength of remote sensing tools for ET, so you can think of just very intuitively, you can think of remote sensing tools as like cameras, right? It's just where are we going to put this camera and what are the wavelengths and what specifically are we measuring with this camera? But really we're, we're talking about images. And those images can be collected from a drone. Those images could even be collected from like a, you know, a a scanning camera on a tower. The images could also be collected from a satellite. And in all of these cases, I think the benefit to using remote sensing to estimate ET is the resolution of an image, right? So if you are using some sort of a, like a tower-like sensor tool, or if you're using a modeled ETC as an estimate, that is going to give you continuous measurements in time usually, but you're going to have one estimate for an entire field or one estimate for, you know, even a region in some cases, if you're really relying heavily on meteorological data and kind of those crop coefficient models. With remote sensing tools, depending on the resolution of the image, 
you'll have like really site specific estimates. So in some cases with our drone imagery, we're, we're getting estimates that are almost at that tree scale. That's the goal with those images. The trade-off is the timing, right? So how often are these images being collected? So with the satellites right now, usually it's every seven or eight days, there's a satellite overpass and then the, then there's going to be some imagery collected. So there's frequency there, but you know, you're not getting that every, every hour or every day kind of estimate. Similarly with a drone tools, it's how often you fly <laughs> is when you're going to have an estimate. So that's the trade-off. It's like, okay, you're going to be able to see this down to the super high resolution, but how often are you going to fly the drone or with aerial imagery? So I would say that the benefit is the spatial resolution and the trade-off is the time, but we are getting better at trying to resolve these two things, right? And in the research world, we're trying to use it all together and use the continuous tools to try to fill in the gaps that we have with the high resolution spatial tools. So I don't really know much about remote sensing and, you know, things like NDVI aside from that it's out there. Is there a way that you could potentially do something like correlate stem water potentials with ultraviolet or plant temperature to do something like go out and send your drone over the orchard and be like, well, okay, the trees aren't quite there yet. You know, maybe we'll fly over tomorrow or, oh, it's time to trim the irrigation system. Yeah. I mean, Phoebe, I, (laughs) I promise to the listeners that I did not ask Phoebe to ask me this question, but this is exactly what we are working on in my research group. Is trying, to, is trying to answer this question and do this type of work. So uh, for managing and understanding crop water stress, one of the most you know, important types of remote sensing to use is that thermal imagery, right? So canopy radiometric temperature or the, the temperature of the surfaces that you're sensing with your cameras. And this also can be kind of intuitive if you think about ET and what's happening, right? So what's happening with ET is there is water vapor moving into the air and that can cause evaporative cooling. So when you're using a camera and remote sensing and you're looking at temperatures over an orchard, the areas of the orchard that have higher rates of actual evapotranspiration are gonna be relatively cooler to the areas of the orchard that have lower rates of actual evapotranspiration. And this is kind of how we, this is how we use remote sensing to both calculate and assess actual evapotranspiration from an image, but it's also, it also can be used that those relative differences to assess the stress or the, you know, potentially the stem water potential of an orchard and look at the differences, right? And one of the issues that's kind of come up over decades of research using remote sensing and canopy temperature is this question of by the time we see the differences in temperature or that drop in temperature, is it too late to do anything about it? And that's what our research group is going to spend the next four years or so trying to investigate. So we're going to be collecting those imagery, but also looking at hyperspectral imagery. And so hyperspectral remote sensing is when you have many, 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 many individual bands and looking at different reflectances across the spectrum to see if there might be some other bands or other combination of bands that are predicting stress, water stress, before we see it in the thermal imagery. 
to kind of get at this question of like, are we seeing the thermal imagery in time? Is it correlating well to the stem water potential? And then if it's not happening in a timely way for us, is there some other combination of bands using that hyperspectral imagery that we could use to predict stem water potential better than the thermal imagery? So that's something that our research group is was working on. And, and I feel like if there is a way to do it, we are going to figure it out <laughs> in the next in the next four years or so. So stay tuned for me on that. I feel very hopeful about it. I, I think just based on where the research has gone with this and, and you know what we've been seeing that I, I feel pretty hopeful. Yeah, I am too. I, I guess my personal opinion is, is pressure bombing really is the gold standard for measuring plant water stress. But I just talked to growers who are like, yeah, we know, but it's just, it's too expensive to have people go out there. Or I don't have the time myself to go out there. And not to say that no one's doing it. I've talked to folks who do use it too, but they have someone who's basically assigned to do pressure bombing and not every operation can afford to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I also just want to stress that this is the gold standard. And that's why with these remote sensing studies that I'm describing, we are always comparing them to pressure bomb measurements, right? That's the big part of it is like, well, what, what were the pressure bomb measurements that day? Like how, when we did the flights or when we collected the imagery and how, how does the imagery compare to that? And trying to get to a place where it can be just as good is something that our lab is really driven by. And I feel very, very motivated by as well, because it, it sounds pretty attractive to get to this remote controlled SWP place. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think almost anyone would rather sit in their air conditioned truck and fly a drone rather than having to be <laughs> dragging a pressure chamber through the orchard. For sure. Finish. Including me and yes. the students in my lab. <laughs> <laughs> How long do you think it's going to be, you know, because a lot of the stuff that you mentioned is theoretical. And I know you mentioned kind of a timeline for your research project, at least. I know it's looking to a crystal ball, but how far off do you think that this technology might be before it's really ready for prime time and accurate enough for you to really, truly rely upon? One of the biggest, I guess, hurdles in getting from a place where like, all right, we know the science of this. Like we know what needs to be calculated. We know when the flights need to be taken, all of that kind of stuff in in terms of what I do, getting from there to when it's going to be turned into decision support tools for the growers. I think one of the biggest humps is actually like data processing and making the data available, right? Because when you start talking about high resolution imagery, you're talking about a lot of data. So like, just as, as a joke, those of us who are working with drones and using really high resolution imagery, we're so, we're so thankful that UC has given us unlimited storage on our Google drives and boxes, just for the sheer terabytes of data that we're, we're collecting. And I'm also very afraid that what, what, it, what will happen if I don't have unlimited storage, you know, so trying to collect the data is easy but then processing the data in a timely manner and making it available to make decisions is going to be, you know, one of the trickier things. That said, there are some very, very smart people working on all of this. So I feel like five to 10 years, I think we will be in a place where we're able to use high resolution estimates of crop water stress and actual evapotranspiration in a manner that's timely to make decisions and to do something about it. 
That's so interesting. I mean, if you think about how much computing power has changed in the last several decades, it, I guess it's still a little surprising that we still have these things where we still just don't have enough. And maybe it's just a factor of we've gone so far and we're just con still continuing to push the boundaries of what's possible. But that's, I think that's fascinating that it's just such a I don't know, almost mundane barrier. <laughs> it's just I know. I'm so yeah. As I mean, I'm sure I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to offend my computer science colleagues, but I agree. It is kind of a boring barrier. But I was <laughs> hanging out with some computer scientists who are just who are working on this very issue last week, and one of the things that I thought that was super interesting that they mentioned was where can we take shortcuts in the processing to make it real time. You know, so the, the type of processing that's done in the area, we call it photogrammetry. And, and it's taking the image and resolving all of the angles at which the photos were captured. So we have this orthomosaic or image that is usable and really a great representation of the orchard, right? So one of the questions that this computer scientist that was was asking me that was really kind of interesting is like, all right, I know that for remote sensing, you want to, you want to do this perfectly and you want to crunch all of the data, but from a decision context, how good does the processing have to be for us to get to a place where we can make a decision with it? And it's going to be an accurate and useful decision. So basically he was asking like, where can we take shortcuts in the, the computer processing to speed this whole thing up? So I thought that that conversation was really interesting and just that wanted to share that we are having those conversations as well. <laughs> well, is there anything else that I haven't really asked about that you wanted to talk about either with ETA or remote sensing? I think we covered just about everything. In addition to just, you know, being very in love with plant water use and plant water stress, I'm also like a sci-fi nerd. And, you know, I think a lot about just like, what is this stuff going to look like? And yeah, I also had the opportunity recently to like meet with some robotics folks. I just feel like the future here is really is really bright and it's going to be really fascinating even with drones. Like I'm I really focus my work on drones that are available and accessible to growers or to people who can just buy a drone off the shelf or buy a camera off the shelf as opposed to research grade custom drones and custom cameras. But there's some really interesting stuff out there just in terms of using drones that are the swarming drones, or there's also like interesting robotics work that's being done in all of these types of modalities, whether it's, you know, a robot that's going to be moving around on the field or like several little drones, they could potentially be equipped with, you know, some sort of really tiny camera or, or larger camera that could be collecting imagery, right? And then how we process that imagery and turn that imagery from an image to some sort of a decision support tool is something that's going to be super cool and interesting to see just over, over our lifetimes. So I'm really excited to see where that goes. But I guess that would be a good place to close, <laughs> close on this. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Phoebe. This is wonderful. Yeah, it was. Thanks for listening to Growing the Valley, a UC A&R podcast. You can find out more about this episode at our website, growingthevalleypodcast.com. 
We'd like to thank the Almond, Pistachio, Walnut, and Prune boards for their support. We'd also like to thank my sister, Muriel Gordon, for writing and recording the theme music.